Chapter 11 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. Edited by Walter Wood. Chapter 11. The Mystery of Yarmouth Beach. Chapter 11. The Mystery of Yarmouth Beach. Mr. Justice Wills, in writing of the Yarmouth Beach murder case, described it as remarkable as showing how a small clue may lead not only to the identification of the culprit but also to the detection of his motive and to the complete circumstantial proof of his crime. The body of a woman was discovered on the beach at Yarmouth. There was not the slightest doubt that she had been brutally murdered, for a mohair bootlace was tied tightly round the neck and had caused strangulation. The woman was a stranger to Yarmouth, and the only clue to her identity was a laundry mark, the number 599, on some of her linen. Eventually the murderer was arrested, tried, found guilty, and hanged. Photographic evidence was a very important feature of the trial, and Mr. Frank H. Sayers, artist and photographer of Yarmouth, was one of the principal witnesses in this respect. This is Mr. Sayers' story. Early on Sunday morning, September 23, 1900, I had been bathing in the sea and had returned to my studio when I was told that it was being watched by detectives, both in front and behind. I had not the slightest idea that anything had happened, and it was not until the detective saw me and asked me if I would go to the mortuary to photograph a corpse that I learned that the body of a woman had been found on the beach, and that there was not the slightest doubt that she had been murdered. It is strange that I had not heard of the murder, for the body had been found at six o'clock, and in returning from the sea I had passed very near the place where it was discovered. Intense excitement had been created, but that was only the beginning of an excitement which spread throughout the country, and was scarcely equaled by any other crime committed during a very long period. The murder was so mysterious, the method of it was so exceptional, and there seemed so little possibility of ever capturing the murderer that every necessary element was provided for an absorbing mystery. I had been often called upon to do strange photographic work, but I had never undertaken anything of this sort, and I may say now that the whole affair completely knocked the nerve out of me and haunted me like a nightmare for many months. I told the police that I would do as they wished me to do, and accordingly I went to the mortuary and took photographs of the body. 
it was perfectly clear that murder had been done. The face was disfigured, as if a heavy blow had been struck, and there was sand in the mouth and on the body. But, most important of all, a mohair bootlace was tied round the neck, so tightly that it was almost buried in the flesh. The merest examination showed that the woman herself could not possibly have tied the lace, and that it must have been done by someone else. Another significant circumstance was that the knot was a reef knot, which will not slip, and which is made, as a rule, only by those who have some knowledge of the sea and ships. What the tying of the lace really meant will be understood when I say that the woman's neck measured nearly ten inches round, while the lace was only a little more than eight inches. Very great force and skill must have been used to get such a small length of lace into such a position. Once the reef knot was tied, there was no possibility of it slipping or becoming loose. The body was that of a young and not unattractive woman, well-dressed, and with four or five rings on the fingers. I learned that when she was found she was lying on her back on the south beach, not actually on the sand, but on the coarse marum grass which grows near the sea. Her hair was loose and disordered, and her hands, with the fingers tightly clenched, were by her side. Such struggling as there was must have been short and fierce. The mystery of the woman was as deep as the mystery of the crime. No one knew who she really was or where she came from. All that was known of her was that she called herself a widow, that her name was Mrs. Hood, that she was a visitor to Yarmouth, and that she had with her a little girl about two years old. She gave her own age as twenty-seven years. She had been lodging with some people named Rudrum in one of the rows for which Yarmouth is famous. No one came forward to claim or identify the body, which in due course was buried at Yarmouth as that of a practically unknown woman. The only thing which seemed likely to afford a clue to her identity was a laundry mark, the number 599. But for a long time nothing definite came to light, and at the end of about six weeks the coroner's jury were forced to return a verdict of murder by some person unknown. Meanwhile I had become acquainted with pretty nearly all there was to know about the woman, and that was just enough to make one long to know more. She had come to Yarmouth with her baby on September 15th and gone to her lodgings. A few days after her arrival, a letter addressed to Mrs. Hood was received by her, it was written on bluish-gray note-paper, and the envelope bore the Woolwich postmark. You will see how that letter, which seemed an unimportant trifle, helped to prove the identity of the murder, but for the time being nothing could be made of it. Another trifle which became important was a photograph of the woman and her baby, 
taken on the beach one of the familiar cheap type which is so common at some seaside places but of its kind a very good thing this photograph was discovered in the woman's room and showed that she was wearing a long old-fashioned chain she was wearing this chain and a silver watch when she left her lodgings for the last time but they were not on the body and not a trace of them could be discovered mrs rudrum saw the woman near the town hall after she had left her lodgings and she spoke to her at that time the woman appeared to be waiting for someone i necessarily became very closely acquainted with the circumstances of the case and i saw that so far as identifying the dead woman went nearly everything would depend on the laundry mark the police took up this clue with great thoroughness and after exhaustive inquiries they found that such a mark came from a laundry at bexley heath and that the number had been used for the linen of a woman named bennett who lived at bexley heath a woman who had a baby this customer of the name of bennett proved to be the woman in the photograph which had been taken on the beach and the woman whose body i had photographed at the mortuary matters now began to move briskly and the case became more absorbing than ever owing to the arrest of a young man named herbert john bennett who was employed at woolwich arsenal he was arrested on the charge of murdering the woman was his wife in answer to the charge he said that he had never been to yarmouth but that assertion proved to be only one of a long series of reckless lies bennett was living in lodgings and these were carefully searched a great step towards the solution of the beach mystery was the finding of a long chain and a watch in a portmanteau these were identified as the chain and watch which were worn by mrs bennett on the night of the murder i had the chain in my possession for some time and took a photograph of it on a black background in addition to this discovery it was found that bennett had previously written to yarmouth and had used the same sort of bluish-gray note paper which he employed when writing to mrs hood for he was the writer of the letter bearing the Woolwich postmark. There was, at last, after many weeks' patient investigation, following up one clue after another, often enough of a clue of the slightest, something tangible to work on, and there was gradually unfolded a most remarkable and cruel case of murder. Bit by bit the links of the chain of evidence against the prisoner were forged until at last something like forty witnesses had been got together to attend the trial at the central criminal court in the ordinary way the trial should have taken place at the norwich assizes but local feeling on the matter was so strong that it was considered desirable to hear the case in london and there the trial began towards the end of february nineteen o one before the lord chief justice lord alverston 
The trial lasted for six days. Day after day that awful business went on, and the dreadful court, the atmosphere of which seemed positively poisonous, especially to a man living at the seaside, was packed by people who seemed to go just as they would have gone to a theater. Cues were formed outside, so that when anyone left the court, the vacant place was taken instantly. I was sick and tired of the thing long before the end came, and as I have told you, the whole sorry business possessed me like a nightmare. The story which was gradually unfolded showed that Bennett married the woman when she was only seventeen years old, she being about two years his senior. He had been taking music lessons from her. The marriage took place at a London registry office, and was, I believe, a secret one. Bennett began badly, and went on badly. He was soon ill-treating and threatening his wife, and began to lead a double life. In position he was nothing at all important, his occupation ranging from grocer's assistant to laborer. He was, I believe, a laborer at the arsenal when he was arrested. Yet he had considerable ability in some directions, and managed to get hold of money by selling such things as sewing machines on commission. He cashed a check at Westgate once for more than two hundred pounds, but how he got the check I cannot say. For some time after the marriage, the two lived with Mrs. Bennett's grandmother, and on the old lady's death the chain and watch passed to the prisoner's wife. After the child was born, Bennett and his wife, in the name of Hood, why they assumed a false name I don't know, went to South Africa. But after being there only a few days, they returned to England, where he continued to ill-use and threaten the woman. They parted, and she went to live at Bexley Heath, while he had lodgings at Woolwich, where he was working, and where he passed as a single man, though he sometimes visited his wife at Bexley Heath. Posing as a single man, Bennett became acquainted with a young woman named Alice Meadows, who was one of the witnesses, and whose evidence showed how deliberately he had lied in many ways. He arranged to go to Yarmouth with her, and wrote to Mrs. Rudrum, asking for rooms for the August bank holiday, but she replied that she had no accommodation vacant. Bennett and the girl, however, went to Yarmouth, traveling first class, and staying at an hotel where they occupied separate rooms. Proof of this visit showed that he was acquainted with Yarmouth, despite his assertion that he had never been to the place. Afterwards he and the girl went to Ireland, where they stayed a fortnight, during which time Bennett spent money freely. The girl had not the least idea that Bennett was married. This fact she did not learn till he was arrested, and she became engaged to him. He gave her a ring, and on the understanding that the wedding was to come off at an early date, she left her situation as a parlor-maid. She was then employed 
at Bayswater. There was now a very strong motive for Bennett to get rid of his wife, and he deliberately set to work to carry out his purpose. He planned and plotted with cool cunning, but with it all he made one or two of those fatal mistakes which have sent to the gallows so many murderers who might not otherwise have been discovered. The deadliest piece of evidence against him, in my opinion, was the chain, and a great deal of the case for the crown depended upon proving that the chain found in Bennett's portmanteau and that which the photograph showed the woman to be wearing were one and the same. The main facts of this extraordinary crime were proved beyond all doubt. The prisoner, having sent his wife to Yarmouth, went there himself on Saturday, September 22nd, and doubtless, when his wife was seen outside the town hall, she was waiting for him, that building being very near the station at which he would arrive. Bennett joined her, for they were seen in a public-house on the quay. Afterwards, at about eleven o'clock, a man and a woman, who were seated in a hollow on the south beach, observed another man and woman seat or lay themselves on the ground. Shortly afterwards, the couple in the hollow heard cries of, Mercy! Mercy! and groans, after which there was silence. There is not the slightest doubt that these cries were uttered when the murder was being committed, and that it was Bennett who was strangling the woman. The actual circumstances attending the crime were evidenced by the appearance of the body when found, circumstances which cannot be detailed, but which went to prove the brutal character of the man who did the deed. Having maltreated and strangled the woman, he hurried off, and at about midnight reached the hotel where he had previously stayed. He was out of breath and greatly excited, and said that he must catch the first train to London next morning. He spent the night at the hotel and left Yarmouth on the Sunday morning by a train which started at about seven o'clock, so the murderer was still actually in the town when the terrible discovery had been made on the beach. Almost as soon as Bennett got back to London, he met Alice Meadows in Hyde Park, and later on he gave her things which had belonged to his wife. He urged the girl to marry him, and was doing this when he knew that all England was horrified and disturbed by the brutal and mysterious crime on Yarmouth Beach. Indeed, the very day before he was arrested, Alice Meadows' sister said, in his and her presence, that it was strange that the Yarmouth murderer had never been heard of. This incident serves to show what a source of general conversation the beach murder mystery had become. Little did the two women realize that they were actually in the presence of the perpetrator of the crime. But to return to the trial. I was one of the earliest witnesses to be called. Before I entered the box, I was not, of course, allowed in court. But after I had given my evidence, I was at liberty to remain, and I did, 
following the case point by point and watching the prisoner carefully. He knew perfectly well how much depended on the testimony regarding the chain, and when I was in the box he looked at me malignantly. But my mind was quite at rest, and I steadily returned his gaze. Great difficulty attended the explanation of certain technical points to those who knew nothing of photography. I had not the slightest doubt in my own mind that the chain shown in the photograph and that which was found in Bennett's possession were the same, yet I was so greatly upset by the warning that a human life might depend on what I was saying that I might almost have wavered. A great deal was made of the fact that some parts of the chain were blurred, and it was difficult to explain to the non-technical mind that the blurring was due to the movement caused by the breathing of the sitter during the exposure, which in this case was about three seconds. There was, however, part of the chain in the lap, and this, being still, was provable as being the chain found in the prisoner's bag apart from the fact that the chain had been broken and fastened with a piece of cotton. Nothing had been left to chance, and in order that I might be better able to illustrate my meaning and prove my point, I had to take the chain and photograph it while it was placed round girls' necks and was hanging down so that it would show how the blurring occurred and by way of more fully indicating the effect of movement electric light was used. The prisoner was most ably defended by Mr. Marshall Hall and two other clever barristers, and in spite of the deadly case which the Crown presented against him, there were some people who believed that the jury would return a verdict of not guilty. On one occasion when I left the court I heard a man say, He'll get off. It's a million to one against it, I answered impulsively. I noticed that what I said was overheard by a man and a woman who were near me and seemed to be terribly distressed, and well they might be, for they were the prisoner's parents. I was, of course, in absolute ignorance of this fact, but I have often deeply regretted that an involuntary remark of mine should have caused them pain. I never had the slightest doubt as to the result of the trial, and I do not see how Bennett could have had any hope of an acquittal, but nothing could be told from his demeanor. From first to last he never flinched and never showed any emotion, which was quite in keeping with his character as revealed at the trial. He was thoroughly bad from start to finish and I do not suppose there was any disinterested outside person who was not relieved and thankful when the jury, after consulting for about thirty-five minutes, found him guilty. Bennett was apparently unmoved even at this dreadful stage, and when he was asked if he had anything to say why he should not be sentenced to death, he replied in that calm, grave voice of his, and quite firmly, I say that I am not guilty, sir. The Lord Chief Justice did not say much after he had assumed the black cap. 
but he made it clear to the condemned man that he could not hope for mercy. I remember the Lord Chief Justice saying, I will only say that after a career for which not much could be said, you deliberately planned the death of this poor woman. In sending the murderer to the gallows, his lordship had to order that the execution should be carried out at Norwich Prison, as the murder had been committed in Norfolk. So Bennett was taken to the old cathedral city, traveling along the line which he had used as a man with a planned murder in his mind, and as a murderer hurrying away from the scene of his brutal crime. He had not shown mercy, and he did not get it, for he was duly hanged. He was buried, of course, in the prison yard, so he is lying not many miles away from the cemetery where his wife was buried as a practically unknown woman. I do not know that Bennett made any confession, but that was not necessary in view of the strength of the circumstantial evidence against him. And there were other things, not generally known, which removed any trace of doubt that might have lingered in the minds of anyone who was concerned in the case. The scene of the murder is more than a mile away from the railway station where Bennett took train after committing the crime. But the actual spot has been altered so much that you could not recognize it. There is no longer the rough merim grass on the sandy ground, for that particular part of the South Beach has been turned into a delightful public garden. What of the reef knot and the baby? Well, as to the reef knot, I believe Bennett had served in the Marines, in which case he would doubtless know how to tie one. As for the baby, she was adopted by the good and real friends who always come forward in the time of trouble. End of chapter 11 The Mystery of Yarmouth Beach Recording by Bill Mosley, Frelsburg, Texas, U.S.A.